You probably already noticed this morning that my shirt tail is out. I actually borrowed this shirt from Pastor Chris because I didn't want you to go into a big cultural shock today. No, honestly, I wore it in honor of that Aggie baseball team that's going to the College World Series. I knew that would get a whoop. Three words for you this morning. Present, prominent, and preeminent. Three words, all of which begin with the word or the letter P. All three words are a progression from present to prominent to preeminent. Present just simply means existing or occurring at this time. Prominent means that it is easily visible, that it stands out, and that it's noticeably important. But the top word, preeminent, means that it's imminently before and above everything else or that it's supreme, superior, and surpasses all others. And as you think about those three words, I want to ask you a question. Which one of those words best describes how much of Jesus Christ is in you? There's a fourth word, but I'm not going to share that with you <clears throat> until we get to the end. And one of the better analogies that I can probably give you this morning would be that of the Latin terms used for honor grads. And having sat through so many numerous commencements and graduations and seeing thousands of students walk across the stage when I was either provost or president of A&M, those that graduated with those honors, cum laude, magna cum laude, and then the top one, as you well know what it is, it is summa cum laude. Because you see, as I watched them go across, I thought about how much of A&M and its education that they took was in them. And it's clear that those that graduated summa cum laude were taking away and living out more of what was put into them. I've had parents tell me, there's a fourth one, laude laude. Well, our text this morning is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Colossians. And I don't know about you, but if you don't have that marked in your Bible, I would urge you to. It's one of the most critical and greatest passages in all of Scripture. But we have to have the context in which it was written, a letter from Paul while he was a prisoner in Rome. And you see what was happening here, as we will read in a moment, the Colossian Christians had begun to listen to false doctrines, false teachings. They had begun to listen to heresies of the day. They were beginning to really follow some of the human philosophies. And those attacked the deity of Christ, number one. Secondly, the origin of creation and nature of the universe and third, the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And those are the same three attacks. Since the church was established and Jesus rose from the dead that the enemy has used until this very day. Well, it's interesting because the Greeks thought it's too simple. And the Jewish people of that day thought they had to add to it. Well, that's where we get so much of the heresy and the false religions of this day. And what happened here is that 
they couldn't believe that Jesus could be both human and God or divine in the same body. And not only that, but they viewed the physical as being evil and that God would never come to earth in a human body. But he did. And those attacks on the church are still evident today. So Paul wrote Colossians that we're going to read here to refute that false doctrine and to proclaim Jesus Christ as God in the flesh and his simple truth. He didn't want the church and the individual Christians here to be led astray and to be taken captive by these false teachings. And he tells us why he wrote this book in Colossians 2. Look at verses 8 and 9. Colossians 2, right across the page from Colossians 1. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, not according to Christ. And that's what we see. That's why he wrote it, because he knew what would happen. And it's so interesting that he put another little statement in verse 10 right with it, so that he was addressing the deity, the God in flesh of Jesus Christ, when he made this statement in verse 10. For in him, the whole, not partial, not 50%, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That was hard for them to understand. But Paul knew that he had to get his point across, or the church would be taken down. Now look at our text this morning, starting in verse 15 of Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then here is our key verse, right in the middle of these six verses. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead. And here is the key phrase that our message surrounds this morning. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's interesting to see how Paul addressed the problems and the attacks on the church and the believers in that day. And this passage is a clear example of how he did. He always pointed them to the Lord Jesus Christ is the real answer. That's the same today. That passage of Scripture could be written to us today and in the same kind of context because all those threats have continued to be present when the church was begun, when Jesus was raised from the dead. And he answered the Colossian Christians by magnifying the true identity of who Christ was, that he was superior, that he preexisted, that he was God in flesh, that he created the world, and that he was the Savior of man. Look at that little phrase in verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the phrase around which this whole passage of Scripture and our Christian walk should revolve. Because you see, it is a purpose clause. It is for this reason, 
that whatever has happened before, it is for this reason that Christ be preeminent. And he is the creator of everything, that he might be supreme, that he might be Lord. You know, it's kind of ridiculous for us to call him Lord and not do what he says that we are to do. One of the most contradictory statements in all of Scripture is found in Acts 10, 14, where Jesus had told Paul, I mean, yeah, had told Paul to go kill something and eat it. So he'd have, I'm, I'm sorry, it's Peter. Paul wouldn't do this. It was Peter. He told Peter, he said, kill that animal so that you'll have food to eat. You know what Peter said? Not so, Lord. Well, that's contradictory. The two don't go together. If you say, not so, Lord, then he's not Lord. And if he's Lord, you don't say, not so, to him. For you see, he's either Lord, preeminent, or it's not so. Well, just what is the scope? Just how broad is this preeminence? It tells us here in everything. It says just how much preeminence does Jesus want to have in my life? How far does it reach? How deep does it go? How wide is it? Well, just how much of, his life, of our lives does he want? Surely there's a limit. Well, look at those two words again. It says in everything, in everything, there's nothing exempt from it. The Christian life is not like us leaving here and going over to the Golden Corral for lunch and going through the buffet line and picking and choosing those things that we want to eat and excluding all the others. I don't know about you, but I would probably stay over here at the steak, the barbecue ribs, the fried chicken table, and then I might, might get a few green beans, and then I would want to go over to the dessert table. Many people live the Christian life like that, like it's a buffet line. It doesn't work that way. And what we find here is that too many people today want to have one foot in and one foot out. One foot in and one foot out. They just simply cannot let go of the world and let Jesus Christ be present, prominent, and preeminent. Well, that answers the scope. But what is the right of his being preeminent? Just what right does he have? And what right does he have to ask that of us? Well, the Gospels show that Jesus never hesitated to make demands on people. He told the disciples to leave all and to follow him. One time he told a man, let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury the dead. And then there's the rich young ruler who came to Jesus one day and he said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? He had manners. He came kneeling. He had morals. He kept the Ten Commandments. He had money, but he wouldn't let go of it. Oh, my goodness, what a church prospect. It would drive most Baptist preachers crazy. They would want to bring him down to the front row and hand him a pledge card. They wouldn't uh, tell him what Jesus did. Jesus told him to go sell everything and then come follow me. Did he do it? No, he didn't do it. 
You know why? Money was preeminent to him. You and I have to ask that question in our lives. What is preeminent in our lives? We're not told here to go sell everything. We simply are told to get rid of anything and everything that separates us from God. And what he's saying here is that when I look at you, when I walk around and look at you, I do not want to see other gods between us. Before me, I want to be preeminent. He wants to be preeminent every day. Well, there are four reasons why he has the right to be preeminent. And the first one is of who he is. His deity. His deity of who he is. Look in verses 15 and 19. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It doesn't say he is in the image of the invisible God. It says he is the image of the invisible God. That's not true for you and me. And in Genesis 1, 26, look what is written here. And I want you to think through because throughout all of this passage and from Genesis to Revelation, there is that consistent, absolute, truthful message that God is God, Jesus is God, He created it all, and He came to die for you and for me. And you're going to see that as we walk through these verses in Genesis 1:26, then God said, "Let us." You say, "Let me," because Jesus was there with him. Create man in our, not my image, and after our likeness. No one has ever seen God, but in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, the invisible God becomes visible, became visible. And that is the crux and the basic foundational message that he is God. In Christ, the invisible God became visible. Look what Jesus said in John 14, 9. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That he proclaims his deity. For you see that word image here, we get the English word of icon. But here, it's even more important than that because what he's saying here is it it is the exact, perfect, and absolute manifestation of God. And then look at the end of that verse. The firstborn of or over all creation. Greatly misinterpreted and used the wrong Greek word often here. Firstborn over it. Now that we think of when we say firstborn, we apply that to our family. Who was born first? The firstborn. But that was not true in this Jewish and Greek culture of that day always. Firstborn meant that it was the son who had the right of inheritance and not necessarily the firstborn in chronological order. If Paul had wanted to say that Jesus was the first created in person, he would have used a different Greek word. But the Greek word that he uses here is very specific, and it relates both to chronology and to position. Because what he was saying here is it expresses the deity and it denoted three things that Jesus pre existed before 
the creation. That he pre-existed because he came from eternity. And third, that his position was that of superiority. And then look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to do what? To dwell. That can be our position. That can be our preeminence if we allow him to do it. And this may well be the most powerful description. This one little verse in all of God's word about the deity of Jesus Christ. He didn't say some. He said all the fullness dwells. And that means permanently dwells the way he uses it here in scripture. And then look what he said. And God was well pleased. You remember what God said when Jesus was baptized? And the voice of God came from heaven and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we see it again here. Look what Jesus said right before he went to the cross. This is called his priestly prayer. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you when? Before the world was created. And again, we see his deity. We see his position. We see his involvement in creation because he was there with God when it was all created. There is another reason, though, and that is the second right he has is because he is the creator. He created it all. Look at verses 16 and 17. For by him all things, and look at the tense here, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, again, verb tense, were created through him and for him. And verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now that is about as clear as it can be, as it can be written about the creation of the world and the universe and everything in it. And it's being attacked by evolution and the theory of evolution. It's a false theory of evolution. I've studied it extensively. And I'm going to tell you this morning, it takes a lot more faith to believe in evolution than it does in God's creation. You see, this is truth. This is the fact right here. Not a textbook that's thrown out. You know why most educated people believe in evolution? And I've been in an academic career all my life. Is that they're told that educated people believe in evolution. And they've never taken the time to research it and to look at God's Word and to look at the order of the universe and the world that is about us. They simply accept it because they're told that educated people believe in evolution. Well, let me tell you, if you believe in evolution, you don't believe in this book. And if we believe in evolution and that you got here by evolving, then you don't need a Savior. It's a lie. It's a deception just as Paul wrote. And they were looking at those kinds of issues back then. Let me tell you something else about it. It takes more faith to believe in it than to believe in, in God's Word. The analogy I give you is that you could take every single part, nut and bolt of a 747, and go throw it in a pasture and expect it to put itself together. It's not near as complicated as we are. Every chromosome in your body has 20 billion bits of information. 
And you young people here this morning, you're going to be challenged on this. And remember that it's false. Creation, I said, look at the verb tense. Were, again, all things were, were created. Because you see, creation ended on the sixth day. And nothing has been created since then. Nothing has been made or created since that time except those things made from what God originally created. Science proves it, but people don't recognize it and accept it. So evolution is so false, it's unbelievable. And then Jesus says in 17, and he is before all things. I want you to turn to John 1 with me. I want you to look at verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word's Jesus. The Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And then turn over a few pages to chapter 8 and look at verse 57 and 58. Because here in these two verses, Jesus had a dialogue going with the Jewish leaders. And he even told them that he had seen God because he was with God. He even told them he'd seen Abraham. And they made this statement to him. They said, so the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And look what Jesus said. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He proclaimed his deity, and he used the very holy name of Almighty God, the great I am. The third right he has is that he's head of the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then our key verse, that in everything he might be preeminent or have the preeminence. Besides being creator and Lord, he's head of the body. He's head of this church. And we all know that the body is controlled by the head. And let me give you an analogy because it is an analogy. And everything in nature and everything about the world is an analogy of the creator and his relationship. And Jesus is the head of the body. I've done a lot of study in neurology and neurophysiology and neuroanatomy. And every one of us in the room, you have a brain. You have a head. And that brain is encased in that skull. And it's connected to every single part of the body. And all of the control and all of the signals come from this brain. And it penetrates down through the rest of the body, through the spinal cord and all of the nerve system. It even controls your heartbeat to a high degree. But I move this hand, I move this hand from the signal that comes from the brain. I move this foot or that foot because of the signal that comes. And our church and our life should be the same way, that he is our head. And let me tell you one other thing. There's also a feedback mechanism because nerves run both to give information up. And I promise you that if you reach over and put your hand on something hot, you're going to immediately take it back. 
Well, when we do something that we shouldn't do, God's going to do the same thing because, you see, it's fed back to him. And we have a great connection, though. It's a protection mechanism, and it makes us function properly because, you see, what happens is that we feed up to him through prayer what our needs are, and he gives us the answer as he comes back down. The analogy is incredibly abstractly truthful. Not only did Jesus create the whole university, universe, but he also, as it says here in verse 17, not only was he before and created it all, but he says he holds it together. Our earth is 93 million miles away from the sun. There's another analogy here. All of the earth and the whole galaxy revolves around what? The sun. Our lives should revolve around the sun. Everything in it. God has a pattern, and he never changes that pattern. He can't because it's perfect. And let me tell you, if we were a few miles closer to the sun, we'd burn up. And if we were a few miles farther away from it, we'd freeze to death. And the earth revolves around the sun at eight times faster than a bullet fired from a rifle. I don't know about you this morning, but I'm sure glad he holds it together. I am so glad he holds it together. Well, have you ever thought about the fact that there's a fourth reason? There is a fourth reason that he has the right of preeminence because of what he did on the cross. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. It says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His cross. And the key word here is reconcile. That means to exchange, to change, to bring into harmony, to restore. And that's exactly what it means. It is the avenue, the grace, the blood of the cross that restores our relationship to Jesus Christ. That is the answer. And as a result of the cross, Jesus Christ has every right to be preeminent. Because you see, the answer is always the cross. Present, prominent, preeminent. Which one best describes this morning of how much Jesus is in you. Which one best describes your relationship to him this morning? I told you at the beginning that there was a fourth. It does not begin with a P. In fact, it begins with an A, the first letter in the alphabet. And that word is absent. Absent. That means non-existent non-existent, missing. And I don't know your status here this morning, but you don't have to leave here with Jesus Christ absent in your life. You can make a decision this morning to start with him becoming present and then move toward prominence and preeminence. Everything that God has ever done or is doing now or will ever do is for one overwhelming purpose of love. 
And that is that in your life and in mine, Jesus Christ might be preeminent. Present, prominent, preeminent, absent. Pray with me. Father, your word is so clear. It is clearly without error. And help us to never doubt the truth of the words that we read today. A passage of scripture, Father, that tells us who you are, who you came to be on earth, what you did on earth for us. And that, Lord, you created it, and you put it together, and you hold it together the same way that we can put our lives together and you can hold them together. And I pray for this time of decision. In Jesus' name, amen. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if Jesus Christ is speaking to you this morning, that you need to ask him in so he becomes existent, you make that decision because the staff is going to be here waiting for you to respond. If you're looking for a church home that proclaims the gospel of Christ preeminently without compromise, whatever reason that God may be speaking to you this morning, you come.